Hello, biomechanists and biomechanist lovers. <laughs> Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Hannah O'Day. I'm Melissa Boswell. And we are students at Stanford University bringing fun biomechanics to you. And by biomechanist lovers, I meant lovers of biomechanics. <laughs> but you can also be <laughs> a lover of a biomechanist. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. Welcome to Boom. We have This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. And today I'm declaring that the episode is brought to you by the student events at ISB ASB 2019. Because I'm really excited about them. Because on July 31st, we are going on a student excursion hike to... Woo, adventure! Kananaskis. You don't have to, to be able Banff. to say it to come on the hike. <laughs> to a really beautiful park in Banff. Um, and then on August 2nd at night, we are going... We're having a student night out to Ranchman's Cookhouse. And also, there is a mentorship lunch... Um, where we'll be doing some mentor matching, um, and you can come to that. Is that like speed dating? Um, so you're most you're just matched with one mentor though, and then there'll be like a couple mentor match pairs at a table, and that is, and then you can come to that on either August third or August fourth. Um, for more information, you can find it on isb2019.com. And we'll be there. And we'll be there. And we'll be excited and having lots of fun. So come join us on those fun events. Hey, and if we like you, we might even feature you on Boom. <laughs> well, we'll probably like you, all of you. And if you want to be on Boom, yeah, you should definitely let us know. We like basically everyone. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a booth at ISB 2019. And you can come to our table, pick up a cool Boom sticker, maybe record a fail. Get a selfie with us. Get a selfie <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if that doesn't get you to ask me, I don't know what will. <laughs> Wait, can I just give a shout out? So I learned something about Canadian engineers this week. Okay. They take an oath when they become engineers that they will uphold like certain character and like morals and ethical, you know, niceties. Yeah being an engineer, and they're reminded of this oath that they take with a stainless steel ring that they wear on their pinky of the hand that they write with. So every time they sign a document, it yeah. like rubs against the table, and they hear and are reminded of wow. the oath they took to be good engineers. And I love that. We did that at my school. Really? Yeah. Well, I don't think Canada? I did it because they only did it in the spring, and I wasn't there. Yeah, but maybe it's more standard there because I haven't heard of many other people doing it, That's so and cool. I hadn't heard of it before. But yeah, it's... so you have a ring? No, I told you they did it without me. I'll never have a ring, so now I have no so ethical you have no morals. or morals. <laughs> We're sitting with a girl with no morals. Well, I don't have a ring either, so no morals on either of us. Today we're talking with Sam Hamner, who is an alum of Melissa and I's lab in Scott Delp's Neuromuscular Biomechanics Lab. And he is currently at Cala Health, which is a medical technology company pioneering a new class of electrical medicine. It's really stimulating technology. 
ha, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Melissa yeah, doesn't listen to one. me, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so Sam does really cool work uh, trying to mitigate um, the symptoms of essential tremor and is working on electrical therapy there. He's just all around a great guy, and we're excited to get to talk to him and excited for you all to get to listen. But first, a bit of boom. 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 So today we have a fun fact from the Biomechanics in the Wild blog by Maria Holland of the University of Notre Dame. And the title of the article is Robots Could Soon Replace Human Stunt Doubles. And I thought this article was super interesting because it talks about how Disney has been working to produce a robotic stuntman that can actually replace human counterparts in performing dangerous aerial acrobatics. (gasps) Wow. And um, it's known as Stunttronics. And it originated from a smaller research project called Stickman, which was a robot that had a line of three metal rods connected by two flexible joints. And the robot was able to utilize accelerometers and gyroscopes to relay what was going on in regards to the position of it while flying through the air. Um, And using all this information, it it could tuck or untuck its sections and rotate, change the speed of its rotation. They're going to put the stunt doubles out of jobs. What's going to happen? Well, so it seems pretty cool in that the technology might be able to produce stunts that would just be too dangerous for human oh. performance, human performers to attempt. But anyways, there's a really, there's a really awesome video about these robots on um, the Biomechanics in the Wild blog. But in summary, they could really serve as a foundation for generations of robots in the future. That's really cool. I feel like you think of, because I always think of, like, if we're going to do something that doesn't involve risking a human, you just, like, have to, like, make an animation or do some crazy, like, CG thing. But this is cool because, like, can actually just, like, do the simulation in real life, kind of. Although I will say CGI is looking concerningly more and more like real life that, all the true. time. That's true. That's <laughs> true. But I it know. will be pretty neat to have robots doing it. Yeah. And for like live, you know, shows and things oh, like that, yeah. that might be pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. I never thought of that. Imagine Beyonce in front of like an army of robots. And then just dancers. like robot Beyonce doing like was... a triple full tuck. Yeah, then you realize Ariel. that it's not Beyonce singing, it's robot Beyonce singing, and <laughs> your whole life is a lie. Beyonce mechanics. Boom actually stands for Beyonce on our minds. <laughs> little, oh known God, fact. little known fact. <laughs> and now for our interview with Sam. Quickly before the interview, though, I wanted to say that the D school is referred to a couple of times throughout the interview, and the D school is short for the design school at Stanford, and it's a place where people use their design to develop their own creative potential. They have courses and workshops and other things at Stanford for students to help cultivate this creativity. (laughs) 
Today on Boom, we're talking with Sam Hamner, who is the Director of Product Innovation at Kella Health and a fellow biomechanist. He got his PhD at Stanford in mechanical engineering. Thanks for talking with us today, Sam. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'm super excited that you guys are doing this podcast to kind of uh, raise visibility about biomechanics. So I've kind of been a fan uh, from the beginning. <laughs> oh, that's Woo! great. <laughs> Listen to a few, watched, listened to a few of the, of the episodes. I haven't listened to every episode, but I've okay. definitely been trying to keep up. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> well, tell us about how you decided or when you realized that you wanted to be a biomechanist. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess it's a little bit of a circuitous path uh, to getting there. Um, you know, I started out uh, my undergrad as a mechanical engineer, and I thought I wanted to be an automotive engineer. My dad was really okay. into cars, and I grew up um, racing cars and things, and so oh, I really nice. thought that's what I wanted to do. And so the first couple of years in undergrad, um, I was focused on that, but I just there was something there that was lacking. Um, I didn't feel, feel fulfilled. Um, and so I started kind of looking around for other opportunities within the engineering program. And just luckily, uh, there was a new professor who was starting the summer. I was looking for opportunities and he was a new professor in biomechanics and I had no idea what biomechanics was. I'd never yeah. studied any, really any bi biology. Um, and I just started working in his lab and I realized, oh, wow, this is a really cool, um, a cool way where I can kind of use my skills that I'm learning in mechanical engineering to help improve people's quality of life. And that actually became kind of my mission statement for my career, uh, came out of that lab of really trying to always continue to learn and then use those new skills to help improve uh, people's quality of life. The other kind of wrinkle for me was um, I also minored in religious studies uh, in undergrad. And I took a course my senior year uh, to finish out um, that minor. Uh, and the teacher was a Jewish mystic. And he taught us about meditation and consciousness oh, wow. yeah. um, and things like that. And that really, no pun intended, blew my mind, uh, opened up my mind to kind of, well, I've been studying kind of these mechanical pieces uh, of the human body. Um, there's this whole new world of, of understanding around the mind and how the mind and body work together to kind of mm. um, create health. Um, and so... I kind of have been on this journey since then to try to figure out, well, how can I use my engineering career to kind of tap into things that are more, that more deal with that mind-body kind of connection mm. as well. And yeah. How, how have you amazing. been able to explore that? That's like, yeah, that's a really amazing. And I think a rare thing to hear from uh, an engineer, at least it that I've come across. Um, so I would love to hear more about like how you've been able to either further explore that area or like or just or integrate that into what you do yeah i guess um i wasn't really sure what that meant at the time <laughs> like i would just like just learned about these concepts and then i was fortunate enough to get um you know get a fellowship to come out here to stanford so i was really was at the university of florida uh, and then came out here for my phd so you know i was kind of thinking more about like well I'm really into robotics and I'm really into kind of, you know, the machinery of movement. Mm -hmm. um, so I was thinking, oh, biorobotics or human machine interaction would be the place mm -hmm. I wanted to go. Um, but as I started to kind of dig into things, I realized, oh, well, it's really more about kind of the brain and the neuroscience. So I took a course in the med school where we got to do to learn about neuroscience and neuroanatomy. And that was kind of my first experience of learning about, you know, how different structures in the brain Kind of control movement and get feedback from you know muscle spindles and golgi tendon organs so we you know 
um, you know, feedback about length and force, and then that's all integrated in the brain and, you know, between what we want to, the task we might be trying to achieve and Mm -hmm. um, that feedback loop. So that was super fascinating. And so now I like to joke, I I work, um, you know, in in more of like a neuromodulation space. And I like to joke, I'm a mechanical engineer who's backed his way into neuroscience. So uh, for a long time, you know, we, I, I just kind of thought about the mechanics of the body and not a lot about the brain and, mm-hmm. and the neuroscience behind movement. So that's kind of been my path to get there. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your work in neuromodulation now. This is at Cala Health. Yeah. So yeah, the company I'm at is um, at Cala Health. It's spun out of the Stanford Biodesign Program. Um, and the idea is really how can we use electricity? How can we use stimulation of the nervous system to treat uh, to treat diseases, mainly chronic diseases. Um, and the unique approach uh, at Cala is that we're really looking at non-invasive uh, techniques of, of applying stimulation. So, um, you know, neuromodulation has been around for a while. Uh, it really, it came about uh, really with cardiac, the cardiac industry or pacing the heart. Um, and then people started applying it with uh, implants into the brain uh, to treat movement disorders, deep brain stimulation is a really uh, amazing uh, application of this. But it still requires major invasive brain surgery. Uh, you literally have to get a hole drilled in your head for a yeah. DBRS implant. That's pretty so, uh, <laughs> the fact that the fact that uh, it was starting to, we were starting to understand that the, from the neurophysiology research that you could potentially modulate the same structures that a deep brain stimulator does, but from the periphery, from peripheral nerves. And so the group that was uh, part of that uh, biodesign program started to explore, well, can we stimulate out on the arm um, to maybe treat uh, movement disorders like essential tremor, or hand tremors? Um, and so they had some very promising results. So the company now, kind of fast forward, we're really positioned to be um, uh, a company that is uh, at the forefront of wearable neuromodulation. So devices that uh, look like a smartwatch or you know something like that, or applying stimulation to nerves uh, in the hand uh, to treat diseases. Wow, that's really cool. And like, I think it's awesome that you guys are thinking about how to tackle this problem from a way that um, is more accessible to pe- different people. It's more, um, it's probably e- more easily testable <laughs> if you're doing things peripherally. And um, I think it's a sort of token to thinking of simpler solutions rather than, um, I feel like, you know, neurosurgical interventions are very complex solutions to very complex problems. But if you can go about it in a seemingly simpler way, even if the mechanism is still complex, like the simplicity of that is actually really beautiful. Yeah, Um, I think that's a great point in terms of, you know, we're always building on the shoulder of giants. So yeah. without the work, you know, of looking at invasive deep brain stimulation and understanding like those targets, I don't think we would have ever gotten to where we are today. But right. with that, um, you know, we were able to move much more quickly in terms of trying out uh, the therapy with with subjects um, uh, right away. So you know, a lot of times in the traditional medical device development path, you start kind of maybe with preclinical work. So you have to work hmm. uh, in animal models to really understand. Uh, what the effect is, and then you have to translate that to a clinical, to a clinical setting or a clinical application. And a lot of, a lot of technologies kind of fail to make that juncture. So, uh, for us, we were able to move very quickly because we could start right away uh, by by working directly with people who had essential tremor. Yeah. The other thing I really loved about that um, is, you know, I've also got some time working on product design uh, in mm-hmm. grad school. 
Um, and so not only were we running early clinical uh, feasibility studies, but we were also designing the product at the same time. So we were able to get oh, feedback like directly parallel. from, yeah, directly from the trimmer patients who were in our studies, you know, about how, uh, how do we make a device so that it's easy for them to put it on their wrist? Or how do we make buttons such that a person with trimmer can brace their hand and actually click the buttons uh, on the device uh, as well. And thinking about packaging wow. and, and all of those things uh, right. from the beginning. So it was really cool for me to be able to do kind of both work that is you know scientifically or clinically meaningful, but then also um, really being kind of patient patient centric in terms mm. of designing a device that is easy to use and fits into a person's life. Yeah, it seems really motivating to be able to work directly with the patient and get their feedback. And I'm sure there are times where they get really excited and it works and sure that's really exciting for somebody that's designing for a person and right. um, were there other design techniques or tools that you learned um, throughout grad school or at Cala Health that you feel um, have been really important in the design process yeah I think you know for me I think one of the, th- the things I've really tried to integrate from the design process is not becoming emotionally attached to a prototype mm-hmm. um, and so when you're really starting to work on an idea, um, it's about trying to just get as much, many ideas out there as possible in the early phase. So, you know, if you're drawing a picture of a concept on a board, that's an early prototype, uh, yeah. in my opinion. And so um, trying to not really get caught up in one solution at the early stage. Um, and that's harder and harder as you get down that path because you start to get to a solution that sounds or feels really great. Um but if you can emotionally detach from that, you can really then accept feedback uh, mm-hmm. from users and I think in a more honest way. So you're not, you know, sometimes I find myself when I, uh, in the early days of <laughs> designing stuff, I would show something to somebody and I'd be a little defensive. They're like, oh, but it doesn't work. Well, oh, well, well you're not using it the right way. Let me show you. <laughs> um, and, and the more you can really detach yourself, I think you'll be, you'll, you're open to receiving kind of all kinds of feedback. Yeah, that's a really good point. We learned that, um, they talked about that a lot in my ceramics class, actually, <laughs> to not get too attached to your like pottery because it's probably going to get destroyed in one way or another, <laughs> Yeah, um, which was a really good lesson for me as pretty much all of my pots were destroyed. But that's a really, <laughs> really good point. I think also like, like transferring that to, you know, as Melissa and I are still amidst the PhD, you know, struggles. <laughs> um, I think like being able to transfer that notion to our work too is like, mm-hmm. it's obviously important to care about what you're doing and to be motivated to do good work. But I think also not being too attached to certain ideas or how you're presenting something, but being able to be detached enough to accept uh, constructive criticism or feedback as that and not in a more sort of personal attack, I think is yeah. something that um, I think is a is a good thing to keep in mind as as you go forward. Um, yeah, and definitely. I feel like yeah, it'd be awesome if um, that's one thing I've also dabbled a little in some of the D school playground, <laughs> um, and I think that's the first thing I noticed was um, the sort of yes and mentality and like the thought of giving constructive feedback in a way that's um, doesn't feel like you have to be defensive when receiving it. Um, and I feel like that was a little bit contrasting to um, how I how I f- felt, you know, starting off in the PhD program, at least like 
felt like it was sort of a high pressure situation with like a lot of expectations of yourself and like other people have expectations but then um yeah there's a way to de- both deliver and receive feedback that's, right yeah that, yeah and i feel like it comes back sorry to come back circle to <laughs> yeah. your point um, well and i love the yes and approach um as well. I mean, that, that comes from improv. Uh, and I actually oh. even took, after learning about that, I, I took an improv class to try to get better at public speaking. But oh, the cool. yes and is really, you know, if you're in a scene, an improv scene with someone, the quickest way to kill a scene is to like, if somebody brings you something, you just say no. Right. <laughs> and then your improv scene is done. Yeah. Right. It's not very funny. So right. the, the principle in improv is whatever your partner brings to the scene, you have to yes. And you have to build on it. Huh. So it's, it's a, it's a great way of kind of thinking about collaboration like like as you pointed pointed out and i think the other another thing this is just a tangent on that riffing on that idea yeah. but for me another shift that i think has happened is thinking about collaboration and leadership is you know i kind of used to think that you'd have you had to have to know kind of everything or you had to create kind of this posture that you were you know especially with the phd this posture that you're the expert uh, at something and you know, right. Yeah. You, and yeah. you defend, you know, you defend yeah. your PhD. Right. Um, and that yes. And mentality, I think is really, it's been a shift for me in terms of leadership because I think it's really important to maybe help create some structure, some framework for your team to be able mm-hmm. to know how are we going to move forward together? But, but I don't have to necessarily know all the answers. Um, and so if I can find a way to build upon everyone's idea, we can all kind of get to a place together that we couldn't have gotten on our own. And so it's a it's been a shift for me to go from, you know, feeling like I have this need to defend or um, uh, demonstrate my knowledge or expertise in a domain and then yeah. kind of being more open to hearing and collaborating and yes-anding mm-hmm. uh, with my teammates and both, you know, in terms of collaborating with a team but also um, in kind of demonstrating leadership and helping o- enable others to kind of um, – you know, do things that they might not think they've been able to do on their own. Yeah. Do you have any ideas looking back at your PhD for how you could have incorporated that mentality more during your PhD? Yeah. Or if it's even like something yeah. that needs to be incorporated, because I feel like a lot of people often say or try to tout how individual and like independent the PhD should be, you know, this should be, this should be where you're able to create this posture of your ability to demonstrate, you know, expertise in this subject and things like that. So like, what are you, yeah, reflecting back? Um, yeah. You, you know, I, I guess, you know, what, that's a good question. I think a lot of times or for a while I thought it was important that I had like one paper or one study where I was the lead author um, and there weren't a lot of other names on the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in retrospect, I probably could have maybe done something that was more impactful with my PhD if I'd had been more open to collaborators. I, mean, I can only say this now. I wasn't thinking it that clearly yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at the time. Um, but I actually think that, you know, I'm impressed with with PhD candidates who are able to pull in, you know, a clinician, an engineer, you know, uh, maybe a psych- psychologist or something. If you're mm-hmm. really thinking about an, a holistic solution, especially the domain of healthcare, mm-hmm. um, you kind of have to be able to work across these different domains if you're going to really um, have an impact in in the healthcare system today. Um, so, you know, uh, being open or figuring out, 
how for you, you can kind of build those bridges with different types of people. And, um, you know, it's almost kind of speaking a different language and across mm -hmm. the different domains. Um, uh, I think that was, that's super powerful, especially if you can figure out how to harness that in your PhD. Yeah. I know that you worked at a nonprofit for a bit between grad school and Cala Health, and I was wondering if we could just talk about that a little bit, like maybe what you worked on, but also what it's like to work at a nonprofit in general. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so after um, after my grad grad school uh, was over, I worked at a nonprofit called DREV. Um, DREV is also connected with uh, Stanford. It's spun out of the uh, the D school. Um, and it's really focused on how can we uh, apply engineering, especially around medical technology, for uh, people living in developing markets. So people usually living on less than $4 a day or something like that. It's, uh, it's kind of usually the benchmark. Um, and how do we deliver solutions to them that are affordable, accessible, yet still meet all, or world-class, meet all of the standards you know, for ISO or ASTM or anything else that would mm -hmm. be required for a medical device? Uh, in, a, in a developed market. Um, and so there were two projects I got to work on there. One was, uh, what I started on was uh, uh, an affordable prosthetic for above knee amputees. So that was really great because I'd spent some time in grad school working on inter international development projects and had this passion to kind of, uh, you know, help people who were living in poverty um, and uh, my background in biomechanics. So it was really this, really this great opportunity coming out of grad school. The other uh, main product line at the time at DREV was um, a phototherapy lamp for uh, babies born with neonatal jaundice. So sometimes yeah. there's elevated levels of bilirubin in the blood. It, it shows up as yellow skin. Um, and it's a simple solution. You just shine blue light uh, on the baby. It breaks up this bilirubin or conjugates it or whatever. And, and then the baby's <laughs> able to um, excrete it out. And so, so that was a great um, experience because I kind of got to expand um, my experience with uh, different types of medical devices um, and spent a lot of time traveling around um, looking, at, looking at and understanding different hospital systems in different countries mm -hmm. and the lack of infrastructure. I think one of the big things that I took away from that was to really, especially in that context, to make a difference. Um, it's not really about the technology necessarily. Maybe that's like a third or even less of the problem. It's really about how do you set up the systems to deliver um, deliver the technology in a, in a reliable way uh, in places where there aren't um, reliable infrastructure. So there's not FedEx or, you know, the things that we're used to right. here for drop shipping or delivering a device to someone or to a clinic. Um, so how do you navigate, how do you navigate those systems in these different places to, to, to try to deliver devices? Um, so then to get to your question about like, what is it like to work at a nonprofit? I feel like it was I was actually well trained uh, by being a grad student because you have to be scrappy. Um, there's not you don't have huge budgets. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like an X factor the difference between you know the R and D budget that you would have in industry versus the R and D budget you would have at a nonprofit. Um, and so you have to be get really creative and figure out okay how do I really do the work I need to do uh, on on a shoestring budget. Um, so figuring out how to do the mechanical testing, building test fixtures, and you 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 know. Find a friend over at, you know, found a found a connection over at a lab at UCSF and was able to use their their Instron machine uh, to do some testing in the basement um, in kind and things like that. So, yeah. um, you know, it takes a little bit longer uh, when you don't have as much, re don't have as many resources. But 
um, that was really the, the, the a big difference. Um, I think too, the thing that was nice is at DREV, everything was really focused on impact at the end of the day. So it was this, there was this thing about the culture where we were constantly thinking about, okay, are we doing the thing that's going to maximize the impact for the people we're, we're really trying to design these solutions for? Mm-hmm. Um, and not, not to say that that's not true at a for-profit company, um, but there are a lot of other, there are a lot of other um, forces, social forces that you have pressure from uh, when you're at a, at a for-profit that you're not necessarily having that type of conversation uh, every day. Right. What are some ways that helped you determine how large the impact was that you're going to make? Right. Like thinking of for-profit companies, like there's like actual dollar signs that you can measure. But what are, yeah, what are like the things that you're measuring? Yeah. So the the team at DREV, you know, I didn't do, I didn't do as much of our, we had a director of impact and and her full-time job was thinking about how do we measure um, uh, in a, in a kind of transparent way so that everyone we can publish and talk about how we measure Mm -hmm. impact. Um, and so there are a lot of different instruments. The one that we used uh, that I learned about for neonatal jaundice was called DALIs. It's Disability Adjusted Life Years. And so in the global health community, this is a, a way to try to normalize or, or understand the impact of diseases you know, across, a, across the global population. Um, and, you know, a lot of diseases, they don't necessarily end up in mortality, end up in death. Um, so how can you quantify the impact of a chronic disability over someone's lifetime and that's what this DALI's metric tries to do okay um, and so you can look at something like neonatal jaundice where you know not most most babies who don't get treated for jaundice they're not necessarily going to, to die from that but they might have brain damage they might have other disabilities that 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 incur or occur because the the jaundice isn't treated at an early age and so that's going to impact their ability to contribute to the economy, to, you know, mm. to create families, um, all these things uh, throughout their life. So you're trying to quantify that uh, over the average lifespan of people. And then you can then stack up all these different diseases and say, hey, look, this is the impact across that. So, uh, so that was one metric we used. But then the other thing is you know, we, spent, we sent people out into the field. We really tracked where our devices went. We even built into the phototherapy lamps um, we built in systems so that we could measure the usage, track the usage. So uh, we didn't have Wi-Fi, uh, Wi-Fi or Bluetooth in the device, but we had a little um, SD card. And so people could, could get that information um, and download it and track it kind of um, in a more traceable uh, yeah. way. Very cool. Wow. Yeah, and that's a whole other like thing to think of when you're designing. Like, I feel like usually you're trying to think of how to design something so it lasts, or so you know. There's a, these other factors that you're um, thinking about, but thinking about designing with um, evaluation metrics that you might not normally have to design for, and for the specific like niche right. of users, I think is really cool. And you know, I'll build, I'll build, yes, and on that. I yeah. mean, I think where I, where we are at Cala now is super exciting. I mean, I think the whole field of medical devices and medical technology, um, we're at a really interesting point where it's super common now to have devices embedded with sensors and data mm-hmm. and the cloud and all these things. And so, I think for healthcare, it's really about how can we how can we leverage these devices, this Internet of Things, to um, track meaningful things about a person's mm-hmm. disease, and then it's not enough just to track it. I think the goal should be how do we then take that those learnings to help someone modify their behavior or apply a therapy in a way that improves their life even yeah. further. So um, it's super exciting because you know coming back to the work at Cala, 
not only do we have this wearable device that can measure, or sorry, that can stimulate a person's wrist to alleviate tremor, but we can actually measure um, things about a person's tremor and then download all that information to a cloud. So on a patient-by-patient basis, we can see how someone's doing uh, in response to the therapy. That's really amazing because I know we're collecting massive amounts of data, and I think the challenge is then making it personalized. Um, And so it's great that that you're able to collect it patient by patient and try to actually evaluate them on an individual basis. Right. And I think it's important, I like that point that you're saying, is there is a ton of data. I mean, and there's a lot. And, you know, especially you hear the buzzwords now about AI or machine learning and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, those tools, they're tools. And they're a lot like other simulation or statistical tools. It's all about the quality of data that's going in Mm -hmm. and then, how you interpret that data com- coming out. So I think one of the things is I'm not a machine learning expert, um, but my experience in biomechanics and human movement allows me to have an intuition about what information we should necess- we should maybe be measuring and putting into mm-hmm. our statistical analyses or machine learning algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how can we interpret that in a way that's clinically meaningful? Mm-hmm. Uh, because right. You can get something out of it, out of the machine, yeah. um, uh, and it might not make sense to a doctor or a patient. Um, yeah. So it's really, I found that that's something exciting about my background is I can help, you know, help on kind of how we design uh, the data that's going in and come and interpreting how it's coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to yes and that point of just yeah that that is like um, I think that. Um, I'm collaborating on like a, a machine learning type project now, and I I also am not an expert by any means in machine learning, but um, like I'm providing data, and that's been super interesting to see how um, like my understanding of that data and what to pay attention to can kind of merge with like their expertise on what tools to use and things like that. But like you really can't do one without the other. Like I would never be able to run the things that they're running without their expertise. And I think they also wouldn't know what's important, like you're saying, that's coming out. Um, And I, that just kind of jumps back to our point earlier about really being able to collaborate and talk across spaces and like how I think that's going to be the future of all of our, that's how we're going to solve like these like, you know, buzzword big data problems and things like that is really in knowing what to pay attention to not just throwing the entire machine at it and trying to hope that something comes out but working together intentionally and in a focused way so now we're going to kind of switch directions a little bit we're hoping that you could share a um, research fail with us or just a time that um Something seemed like a fail, um, maybe something funny <laughs> that you can think of. And we usually end up like turning it into how you were able to learn from that. There's one that comes to mind. It wasn't research. It was actually a time at DREV uh, where there was a, a failure with the with, – and it was literally a failure with the knee. <laughs> um, uh, so we, when I first started, one of the big challenges was how do we go from um, a design that's being CNC'd uh, or milled on a machine – um, one by one and one-off units to um, something that can be mass-produced. So with injection molding, um, and so we were we had you know, done a, done a quick material selection, picked a picked a material, had some prototypes. We're building them and we're uh, working really really hard to get them ready for a field trial in uh, Indonesia. And so we had so we you know, built all these knees, 
put him in our suitcase, literally brought him with us on the plane um, and showed up. We were working with the ISPO, the International School of Prosthetics. We dropped off the first batch in Jakarta, spent a few days there, got the study, kind of the field trial up and running. Then our second site uh, was in Bali, uh, which was, you know, it's really hard when you have to go to Bali for work. Yeah, but, that's, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so we're there and we're on the last day and, you know, I'm packing up and we had a few knees left over um, and I pulled it out and there was a crack down the side of the knee and my heart just dropped because, you know, I, then I pulled out another one and there was another crack. I was like, oh my God. And it, it was, I was... I was super nervous and scared. We had just spent all this time and effort and flown all this way. And there were multiple, there were issues with it. Yeah. Um, and so, but, you know, my teammate actually was really helpful. We talked about it. You know, we kind of were like, all right, well, this is, we're just going to have to deal with this. We need to be up front. We, we, we took back all, you know, at the site that we were at, we took back all the product, um, came back home. And I think the lesson, you know, as an early engineer, I used to kind of, I kind of embarrassed to say it, but I used to like, why do we have quality systems? They're such a pain in the butt. And, <laughs> you know, you have to do all this extra paperwork and blah, blah, blah. And we had just started to build a quality system um, at DREV when we done, we'd done this build. And I was so thankful um, that we had because we were able to go back and do a root cause analysis and figure out what had happened. And at the end of the day, we ended up picking a plastic that was um, uh, susceptible to cracking. It's something called environmental stress cracking. And if you put a solvent on certain types of polymers, they start to crack over time and it, and it doesn't, it takes like weeks for the crack to form because oh. it's this chemical process oh. that's happening. Um, and so we were able to like work with exponent and do this cool, you know, scanning electron microscope to, to really figure out what was going on. And it came down to a decision um, on the manufacturing line where we decided to use a, we needed to ream out a hole and we used some cutting fluid and the cutting fluid attacked this type of polymer. So mm -hmm. uh, we were able to go back, read, you know, figure it out, pick a new material um we were trans you know we were open and honest with the sites about what was happening with the board you know the board of directors we had to do all this work yeah um and i think that was one of those the lesson i took away from it was you know had trying to just stay calm and present especially in the moment when i found the first knee yeah um you know i wanted to run <laughs> i wanted to run away yeah right i just was like ah, i'm out of here but um you know Thank, thankfully, with my teammates' help, you know, we stayed we stayed calm and we were just open. But then, the other lesson was about this idea of like taking your time, especially when you're doing a, you know a project or a build, to kind of document your steps mm -hmm. and the things in, uh, that go into it. Mm -hmm. um, especially when you're designing a medical device for some for someone else that impacts their their health, mm -hmm. um, it's extremely valuable. And I kind of learned that the hard way. Uh, and you know. Um, Anytime I work with our quality team now, I, I try to tell them that story. I'm like, look, I know I'm an engineer. And I was the one who used to complain about this system, but I get it. And I love it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's my that's one of the big failures uh, that I had to work through. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, I think that's – I feel like whenever we fail, it feels like, a, like oh, this is like the end of some – like the end of – the world, not like actually the end of the world, <laughs> but like it can feel very um, disheartening. And um, I, I appreciate your like vulnerability and openness to that, but also like how you work through it, because I think it's helpful to 
keep in mind during those times like oh well so and so got through it like this happened to so and so like <laughs> they got through it so <laughs> we can do this <laughs> and i know Melissa and i have shared a number of our disheartening fails on <laughs> on boom so um we really appreciate it yeah <laughs> yeah and as a final wrap up question um what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics well, I guess I'm probably a little biased. That's uh, okay. I, my, <laughs> Usually, I didn't, I didn't put state my conflicts of interest. At the <laughs> but you know, I really going back to some of the stuff we were already talking about. I I really think we're in an exciting time for uh, the potential of kind of medical technology, um, especially around wearable medical technology that can have um, a big impact in people's lives, um, and is moving towards things that are more accessible. So, mm. you know, one of the other things I really um, am proud of about the work at Cal is we're designing devices that, uh, you know, it's still a prescription device, but we're drop shipping it to patients' home. So it's really easy for them to get access um, um, and to use. And then collecting, you know, collecting all this data to improve the therapy and improve therapies over time. Um, we recently just launched a study which would be you know would be the biggest study for essential trimmer i think in the in the u.s um and we're collecting an amount of data that was not possible even five ten years ago through through having distributed systems out in the world that mm -hmm. can collect data uh, in a meaningful you know in a clinically meaningful way so kind of tying these things together with you know devices that are easy to access and that can can treat diseases that you know really um have an impact, but then combining that with kind of the sensor technology, all of this is coming together uh, in, you know, in the last few years. You know, I like to say when I started grad school, there still wasn't even a smartphone. <laughs> and you know, now you can strap a computer to your wrist. Um, it's pretty amazing. So trying to take advantage of these tools to really improve how we deliver healthcare, I think is, is, is really where I see biomechanics going. Um, I mean, and then really to bring it back to biomechanics, you know, the, what we can learn about human movement um, with accelerometers uh, is just amazing. Because I think back to my PhD, um, accelerometers were still, were not really as ubiquitous, ubiquitous as they are now. And, you know, we really have to work with like motion capture systems or, um, you know, some of the other magnetic type sensors that you can use to measure human movement. And they're cumbersome and they're, you're stuck in the lab. Um, and so you're trying to recreate these real-world contexts uh, in your lab as, as much as possible. But um, people behave and move differently uh, in the real world. I kind of like to joke sometimes, you know, when free-range people get to go do, you know, do their thing. <laughs> uh, and you're really trying to measure and capture that to understand behavior and how it impacts um, health. So um, I really think that's where, that's where we're going, and, and it is an exciting time. Yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, I, you know, I hope uh, all the success to Boom, and thank you for you know raising visibility to the to the work of uh, biomechanists everywhere. Yeah, well, it's really exciting when we get to talk to people like you who are really passionate about it and excited, and um, it's easy to get other people excited. So we appreciate you yeah, taking the time to do that. You brought some really unique perspectives, I think, to Boom, which we haven't had represented before. So really, thank you for that. All right, thank you for having me. Well, thank you to Sam for that interview. And now on to research fails. Research fails. Yes, it does. 
I feel like this is this is kind of research fail. This is kind of just a life fail. In mm-hmm. that, that's uh, that's allowed. That's Any true. kind of fail Any is kind of fail. is allowed here. Basically, um, the engineering department here sent out a really nice email to the engineering alumni of Stanford, which I am one because I got like well, mm-hmm. mo- both Melissa and I have our masters. We are both alumni. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. still students. Um. And so they sent an email about this really cool camp that Stanford puts on in the summer called Sierra Camp. Okay. And it's basically just like this awesome camp up by a lake. It's pretty relaxing. Oh, yeah. 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 It's very... It's very expensive. It's very expensive. <laughs> but it looks like an amazing camp, yeah. Yeah. And I thought, wow, they're like, they never like advertise... I feel like they rarely advertise this to students. And I didn't realize it was to, to the alumni listserv. And... I was like, oh, good, like maybe it'll be affordable since it's for students. And it was still quite out of the price range. <laughs> and so I emailed them and was like, oh, is this maybe they made a mistake about the price? <laughs> <laughs> they were like actually super receptive and they were like, no, this is to young alumni. We would like to be able to offer it to current students because we realize that it is quite expensive yeah. and we'd like to be able to subsidize it. But for right now, this is what the best we can offer so i was like totally no worries like maybe someday i'll be able to afford it like thanks for you know doing what you do and mm-hmm. i replied all to the whole like everyone that was I'm there sorry. by accident and but, but basically it was an email being like thank you but i'm poor <laughs> <laughs> and you sent that to all the alum all of the alumni it was just engineering dash alumni at stanford so you know who knows that <laughs> who is in that Probably lots of alumni that can't afford it. Uh, maybe I, I wish like other alumni were like, I'll sponsor you. I know, right? <laughs> so, um, but then I like resent, I sent a PS GIF that was like, did I do that? <laughs> it was Urkel. <laughs> That's amazing. So, hopefully they appreciate that. But um, so if any Stanford alumni are listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> but also you're welcome for the Urkel GIF. <laughs> we had a there was an email chain like that previously it was like this spam um oh, where it was like some fake like marketing thing and someone replied all and was like i didn't order these i don't i don't i don't use this in my lab um like i don't i don't want to buy any and then like someone else was like this is this is spam like please don't reply all and then like I kid you not, for, like, 48 hours, people were responding, like, you know, like, please take me off this email chain. Like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And then, like, I don't use this. Or, like, I'm the president of, like, this so-and-so, like, giving their full – or, like, I'm the doctor in, like, this department and, like, giving their full background and being, like, like, who put me on this list? And we're just, like – and then there was just like eighty five, like stop replying all, stop replying all, and it was, yeah, it was a disaster. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous spiral. Yeah, and it's like so, you just have to stop. You just have but to. I was thinking recently, like, what if I just? I'm thinking about just following up on the email chain, <laughs> like that was Is like a year okay? ago, yeah. and just like send a follow up email and be like, yeah, like. Did anyone ever, like, sort this out? I don't want to be a part of this email. Or, like, just send an email that's like, can you please take me off of this email? Just to, like, resurrect yeah. all of that. I just want to circle back. <laughs> Does anyone know where I can find those? Because I actually do need to buy them now. <laughs> yes. Reply all. That'll get you. 
At least you handled it with class. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Well, thanks for listening to to Boom. To, to this month's episode of Boom. To this podcast that we're doing right now. <laughs> you can follow the International Society of Biomechanics on Facebook and on Twitter at IS Biomechanics. Do it. It's easy. Yes. And register for ISB ASB 2019. Register um, for ISB ASB ASP. What is that? ASAP. ISB, ASB, ASAP. Got it? There it is. That's the one. (laughs) Biomechanics off our minds. minds.